now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Dr. Remy Adekoya. I'm a politics lecturer at the University of York and author of the new book titled Biracial Britain. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion called Race Isn't Just Black and White. My article covers some of the themes I covered in the book Biracial Britain. And I started out by talking about one of the main complaints I heard from mixed race Britons I interviewed for my book. And this pertains to the frustrating lack of control over how they are racially perceived and positioned within society. So I argue in the piece that mixed race people are going to be more assertive now and monoracial society is going to have to start learning how to adapt to that. So irrespective of whether I was speaking to people who were mixed black white, to people who might be of Indian English heritage, to people who might be of Pakistani Lebanese heritage, one of the most common um, themes which emerged from the discussions I had was that frustrating lack of control. So essentially they'd be in environment A and people would say, oh, you know, to me, I've always seen you as a Pakistani person, for instance. And then they'd be in environment B and someone would tell them, no, actually, I don't think you don't strike me as someone who's really Pakistani. Actually, I've always seen you as more Lebanese. And of course, one of the most common stories we often hear about is regarding that black-white uh, experience and how people who are of mixed black and white heritage are positioned. And so I started out talking about how Obama was asked this question. You were raised by a white mother and your white grandparents. You know, why do you call yourself black? And in the interview, which I cite, which is a 2007 uh, interview with CBS, Obama responded in a way that I think symbolized how this whole dynamic works. And he says, look, Honestly speaking, I never really decided at any point in my life that I was black. That was decided for me because when you are of my kind of skin color within the U.S., you are essentially treated as a black person. And when you are treated as a black person, as an African-American, you start to identify that way even from young childhood. And so it's not really a choice we make. It's something which is imposed on us. And I talk about how our identity choices as mixed race people have historically been limited by the fact that we usually were, if you go back to the 20th century, for instance, a very tiny minority of people in societies dominated by the big monoracial groups, whether it's the black racial group or the white racial group or the other big monoracial groups. And we essentially just had to adapt. Looking at that individual, for instance, Obama, very powerful individual, someone who became actually the most powerful person in the world, he still was, to a certain extent, a prisoner of the historical interactions and conflicts between black and white. He was a prisoner of the one-drop rule, which essentially states that, well, to white people, you will always be seen as black, even if you have just a minimal amount of black ancestry. So he never really had any choice in the matter. But what I say is changing is that mixed-race people are actually trying to come out of that prison, so to say, and become more assertive in the way they identify. Kamala Harris now is the most prominent mixed-race individual in U.S. politics at the moment, being vice president of the U.S., and we already see that a little bit with her. She's more assertive, I'd say, in how she identifies and in who she feels that she is. And I think this is going to be a trend that monoracial society is going to have to get used to and generally is going to affect how identities are perceived on a larger scale. So it's about rethinking the social construct of race. Most reasonable people today would agree that race is a social construct, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter in the lives of millions of people. It does matter in the lives of millions of people and whether something is a social construct or not. If people believe it matters, then it matters. And race clearly seems to matter to a lot of people. So we are not going to disappear racial identities this century. 
I doubt that is going to happen. But what we can do is rethink them. Because we thought them up in the first place, we imagined them up in the first place, but we can rethink them and design them in a way that creates an environment in which the individual can thrive as best as possible. And that's the key moving forward. Remy Adekoya's piece called Race Isn't Just Black and White was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Our guest today is Joe Henrik. Joe is the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, and he just wrote a really interesting book called The Weirdest People in the World. Who is weird? It's us. It's people who are Western, educated, industrialized. It's the kind of people that psychologists have often looked to when they do experiments, because it's easiest to get people who are undergrads at their own institution. And so our idea of what humans are actually psychologically like has been distorted for a long time, according to Hendrix. Our conversation is very wide-ranging. It is talking about how it is that people in the West became weird, whether this is a universal human tendency, what kind of benefits and drawbacks that might have, and whether the world is likely to become more and more weird as time goes on. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Joe Henrik, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you. I want to start with a little exercise for our listeners, which is much I think I've ever done. Take a few seconds and you can pause after I ask you the question if you need a little more time to complete for yourself the sentence, I am. Just I am whatever comes to your mind. I'll give you a few seconds. You can pause the podcast if you like. Write down about 10 of these if you can. All right, Joe, why did I start with this? What's the importance of this? You must be on to me. Yeah, so this is a widely used approach that psychologists have administered around the world. And there's interesting patterns in the way people respond to it. So if you gave it to a bunch of American undergraduates, they would mostly respond with attributes or aspirations or personal characteristics. So I might say I'm a kayaker and a scientist and go on from there. I'm curious, something like that. But if you could do this to people in other parts of the world, they're more likely to answer with roles and relationships and responsibilities. So in my case, I might say I'm Jessica's father, Natalie's husband, and Ross's brother. Uh, and so that would place you within a network, within my kin-based network, and tell you something about my roles and responsibilities. And we just find this varies a lot around the world and captures some of this difference between people who view themselves more as unitary individuals versus those who see themselves as part of an enduring social network. Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things in your new book, The Weirdest People in the World. And one of the fascinating things about it is that it really varies. I'm just looking at this graph between U.S. undergraduates on one end of the scale and Samburu people or Maasai people on the other end of the scale. But it would be too easy to make this about the West versus the rest or something like that. Because I think the really interesting part of this graph is Nairobi undergraduates versus Nairobi laborers. Nairobi undergraduates don't look exactly like US undergraduates, but very close, actually. And Nairobi laborers look much closer to the Maasai than the Samburu, to people in their own city, in their own society, who have a sort of different training and different socioeconomic status and so on. So why is it that this simple exercise 
is a real challenge to a lot of the way that psychology has been done for the last 50 years. So it's just one example of something where you get radically different responses depending on the population that you sample. So psychologists have something over 96% of participants in social psychology experiments have been Westerners, and most of those have been Americans, mostly American undergraduates until maybe the last decade or so when people have begun using online samples. But it's still highly oriented towards educated Western populations. And even the occasions when psychologists have gone to diverse places, they've tended to sample from university undergraduates. So if they were to go to Nairobi, they would have got that sample that you see in that graph. And that wouldn't have allowed them to see the full breadth of the variation. They would have coded it as, oh, we had some Kenyan subjects. Turns out Kenyans are exactly like Americans if you go to a fancy college in Kenya and get psychology undergrads, right? Exactly. And so that's sort of the idea, I mean, the weirdest people in the world, this word weird stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. So people who live in a very sort of small subsection of the population. But how is it that we've misunderstood the world because of that? So social psychologists have been going around torturing undergrads at Harvard and the University of Michigan with random little experiments. And then they've said, hey, we've learned something about human nature. But actually, we've learned something about what weird people in the technical sense have in common. What did we miss about human psychology in the world? And what did we miss about what's sort of specific about weird people that wouldn't be true if we'd actually spend more time, for example, with laborers in Nairobi? Yeah, the key idea here, so weird is this acronym we created to raise the consciousness of researchers, that the populations from which most of their subjects are coming are not only one population among many in global psychological diversity, but a population that's particularly unusual in lots of ways, anchoring the extreme end of the distribution. So we talked about the 20 statements test, which is what we did at the beginning, the IM test. And that's just one part of a complex called the individualism complex which includes many different features, but is built around how people think about themselves. It also comes across in whether shame or guilt tends to be an important part of it, or whether people engage in self-enhancement and always emphasize putting their best foot forward. It's captured something of overconfidence. So people overvaluing how good they are at particular things. Everybody thinks they're an above average driver, for example, but people's tendency to think that way actually varies a lot across societies. And that's just tip of an, a larger iceberg that includes people's use of intentions and moral judgments, how much they trust strangers, and whether they do more analytic thinking or more holistic thinking. And so how does our view of the world change? I mean, I imagine that most of the people who listen to this podcast are deeply weird in this sense. I'm sure that's not true of all of them, but it's probably true of the clear majority of them. And we probably are embedded in social networks with lots of other weird people as well. So what do we miss about human nature? What do we miss about human psychology? How are those laborers in Nairobi different from us? Or how were many of our ancestors in the past different from how we are today? One of the points of the book and some of the other work I've done is I'm just isolating several of the domains for which we have sufficient evidence. So we know, for example, people's visual perception varies across societies and their memories. But what does that mean? That seems like a huge claim. So if you, for example, just give them a picture and you have them remember and you give them a memory test after they've looked at the picture for a while, 
you find that people from more individualistic societies will tend to focus on the central object and they'll remember what the central object did, but they don't remember very much about what happened in the background. Whereas if you ask people from other societies, less individualistic ones, they tend to remember more of the background, less about the focal object. And, and then if you do eye tracking, the memory tracks what they're attending to. So just where they're looking on the picture seems to vary. So sort of if you think of the way that a photographer composes a picture, it's nearly as though weird people sort of understand what the photographer wants them to see, you understand a certain kind of mental imagery. It's like, oh, you know, this picture is about the portrait of a person in the foreground. Who cares about the background? Your brain just blanks it out. Whereas actually people who come from outside of that cultural concept say, oh, well, look, there's, there's a really interesting tree in the background. There's this and there's that. And they perceive all these other things that we sort of filter out quite actively. Yeah. And there's been some work, although there should be more, connecting this tendency that we can capture in laboratory experiments to the actual production of the art in that society and back into history, the sort of centrality of the individual or the expressions on individual faces, the role of family members in the background, things like that. You know, obviously this matters as a story about social science and about some of the ways in which the field of psychology was overly narrow. But it also matters in our understanding of the contemporary world, because when people are weird, but allows them to do certain kinds of things, right? So what is the wider economic and political implication of a society that is significantly weird? Well, the case that I make in the book is that with the transformation of people's psychology, which I think gets going at least in some parts of Europe during the high Middle Ages, it leads to different ways of organizing politically, organizing organizations like how you organize a monastery, and also law. So you get this emergence of an individual-centered law where there's a lot of focus on individual mental states. Political power is distributed by giving people rights. So citizens of town, say in Germany, get endowed with individual rights. It could be a freedom from impressment. Also some responsibilities too, like communal defense of the town and things like that. So it's just a different way of thinking. And then it leads to build different kinds of institutions, whether they're legal or political. So tell me a little bit about that. And the claim, the subtitle of your book is that this helps to explain not just how it became psychologically peculiar, a point that we'll get, but the psychological peculiarity helps to explain how it became particularly prosperous. So why is it that these weird characteristics help to sustain an abstract legal system, help to sustain economic growth? Walk me through that process. Yeah, the case that I make is that with the breakdown of traditional kinship structures and kinship structures in most human societies, so this is well documented within anthropology, they are the main unit of production. They're the source of your identity. They're your old age security. They're your insurance if you get injured. So kinship systems perform all these functions. And as that breaks down in Europe, for reasons we can talk about, Europeans begin to form new kinds of voluntary associations. So this takes many forms. The early guilds are actually mutual self-help groups, often had a religious orientation, so you would swear an oath to join, and then this would take care of some of your needs. Early universities were voluntary associations. New monasteries began spreading in the high Middle Ages. And I think most importantly for the story are these chartered towns. So these are towns you kind of join like a member. You become a citizen and then you get these roles and responsibilities. Towns had charters, which laid all this out. This is the beginning of constitutions. Successful charters from towns that prospered economically began to spread to other towns, 
towns would adopt these new charters in ways. And these charters were used to attract new members. So unlike families where you're webbed into a permanent network and you can't switch clans, for example, towns, you could move between. You're a merchant in one town, another town gives you a good deal. And we see a lot of movement amongst professional classes and also skilled craftsmen, masters, things like that, are moving amongst these towns to get a better deal. And so this begins the process of kind of putting together laws that allow strangers to work together and thinking of individuals as mobile rather than parts of networks. So let's go back to the beginning of this. Remind me of what the first step in this chain is, because it seems like sort of one thing builds on another. What's the first step? It's about kinship structure and marriage, right? Yeah. So uh, where I see is the sort of the interesting event in the emergence of Western Europe, the emergence of weird people, is that one particular brand of Christianity, the one that eventually evolves into the Roman Catholic Church, gets a peculiar prescriptions and prohibitions on marriage in the family, where they eliminate polygynous marriage, they ban cousin marriage, they make it incest, and that prohibition expands to eventually include up to six cousins. It includes affines and spiritual kin. They ban marriage to affines. So like in many societies, if your husband died, you would marry his brother. So levered or sororal marriage, they get rid of all that. These things can all be found in the Old Testament as well. So this was a new thing being introduced into the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this breaks these families down into monogamous nuclear families. So at least in some regions of Europe, sometime after 1000 CE, you get these more monogamous nuclear families, especially in urban areas. You're also freed from the land. So when you have agricultural societies with kinship, this often ties you to land. You have ancestor beliefs in the land. It's often inherited automatically. There's not an inheritance by testament. So this frees people to move around and go to these towns. So this, I think, is the precipitating event. So I think there's a lot of information here, so I'm going to play dumb and walk this really, really slowly. If I can marry my cousins or if my wife passes away, I marry her sister it is more likely to embed me in a kind of clan or in a wider family structure. And what impact does that have? Why is it that that stops some of the economic developments that you then see in places like Western Europe? Yeah, so that can be really good, right? Because if you're using marriage to build these strong kin ties, you're expanding your productive sphere, you're creating allies, you're increasing your security because you can call on those allies to help you. So in lots of human societies, families get really strong and the most successful people are members of strong families because it's the family and these kin links and all these resources you can call on, social resources you can call on. So those things have typically been together, but the church gets this idea that God doesn't like this stuff. And so it breaks all this down. So it's in some sense forcing the society down a new trajectory. And that's when people begin building these voluntary associations and begin developing these notions of individual rights and creating organizations that are suited to individuals as opposed to fostering to the family, taking advantage of kinship. People become less conformist, less deferring to authority and to the ancient sages. And that creates new institutions eventually getting to things like science and representative government and things like that. So walk me through that jump. So now, for whatever reason, there's a huge variety in marriage customs and there's a huge variety in beliefs about who you can and can't marry across pre-modern societies. In this particular pre-modern society, somebody gets it into their head that you shouldn't marry cousins, you shouldn't marry affines, et cetera, et cetera. We can discuss whether that has deeper causes, whether that's just sort of random, right? But that then sets this chain of events into motion that you describe, that suddenly people are more individualistic, they're less tied to the land and so on. But then you get to law and representative government. That seems like a pretty far way out. So talk us through this process. 
Well, yeah, sure. So one uh, place this, where you can see this to a degree is in monasteries. So if you look at monasteries in Ireland, which doesn't get the marriage and family program because the brand of Christianity it got actually preceded the development of these ideas. And so there, monasteries are inherited from clan to clan, and they're just basically a family affair. But what you start seeing in Europe, and the example we have is from France, Cluny Abbey, you begin to get more democratic institutions. And so a member of the Cluny Abbey breaks off and forms the Cistercians. The Cistercians start having the democratic election of abbots. So all the monks can then vote and determine who's going to be the next abbot. And it can get passed down. Anybody, regardless of your background or family, can become the next abbot. And then they begin developing a franchise organization. So they start spawning off other Cistercian houses that adopt the basic constitution of the Cistercians, but they can do a certain amount of independence. They elect their own leaders. They can make some of their own rules. And so you get this kind of system. The same thing happens with these charter towns. So they start developing things that are going to be attractive to the individual because they're a voluntary association. So there's a new dynamic governing the adoption of these laws and stuff. And so slowly they're accumulating constitutions that allow them to interact, a bunch of strangers, and to attract new members and bring in new members. So it's creating an evolutionary system, a kind of cultural evolutionary system, where those sets of rules about how to govern a town are being selected because people can move. And so that the towns that are prospering, their rules are getting selected and spreading amongst other towns. This is an interesting way of thinking about it, right? That actually, in your very specific context, a clan may be a really good adaptation to the kinds of problems you're facing. I'm writing a book at the moment about diverse societies around the world. And certainly, I think in a place like Afghanistan or Somalia, very insecure, a lot of conflict with other groups that are nearby, having a very strong tie to a clan that can defend you and that can create some form of local order in the absence of an effective state seems like a very rational response. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to change those societies, because for the people who are in those situations, it is in fact very, very rational to sustain those kinds of kinship groups and clans and so on. It's one of the sort of few protections they have. But of course, it is, as many things in the world, individually rational, collectively often irrational. It ensures that there is this endemic conflict and violence and that people can't exercise choices. Now, if you rejig the situation in such a way that suddenly people have a freedom to move from place to place and they can go to a town that is prosperous and that gives them some rights instead of one where they are more oppressed, then that creates systemic incentives for more of those kinds of towns and cities to flourish. And that, I suppose, is the core of the case for how that changes. Now, what do you think the impact today is of the different distribution of these kinds of attributes? I can see how this helps to explain the history, but let's leave the history behind a little bit and think about sort of this moment. Why does it matter whether your population is weird or not? If you already have a relatively effective state, if you are in the modern world, there's not every single part of the globe, but most parts of the globe today are. Well, we can still see it at two different levels. So one of the levels you can look at is the quality of democracy, so how well-functioning a democracy is. And there's still enough cousin marriage and different kinship practices around that you can show a correlation between those two. So the argument that I make in the book is that the more you're broken down into these monogamous nuclear families, the easier it is to avoid corruption and maintain strong democratic institutions. More recently, my lab has been looking at variation within the U.S. And so one of the things that's been happening in the U.S. is there's been a polarizing divide in people's moral psychology. So some counties in the U.S., this is using instruments from a researcher named John Haidt and Jesse Graham, 
And they kind of measure people's morality and put them at a more parochial end where people tend to focus on in-group loyalty and hierarchy and divinity or an area where you focus on kind of impersonal fairness and justice. So it's two ends of this scale. And counties that have experienced very little residential mobility and have been getting hit with a lot of shocks, so think fires and effects of climate change, whatnot, they've become much more parochial. And meanwhile, the urban cities, cities, places near water and stuff have become more focused on universalistic morality. And that can explain things like voting for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, this kind of moral polarization that has occurred. And it's only occurred in the last 20 or 30 years, right? So we have enough data that we can kind of plot that. So what's only occurred in the last 20 or 30 years is that you have a real change in the distribution of psychological attributes between different localities in the United States? That's right. So an increasing spread between those and some of the causal factors that we think may be related, although this is still work in progress, is declining residential mobility. So one of the things I bring out in the book is that people being able to move around and kind of pluck them out of their enduring social networks seems to have a positive effect on things like winning egalitarian rules or, you know, concerns about strangers, a fairness towards strangers. When people have been locked into their same social networks for a long time, same as their parents say, then they're just less inclined towards that equity or impartiality towards strangers. There seems to be a kind of teleological assumption in some of the way you talk about this, some of your work, that, you know, it's sort of better to be weird than not to be weird. You know, it comes out a little bit in the idea that this helps to explain why some societies are prosperous, but now there's it also, I think there's a hint of this in how you describe it about the United States, that, you know, actually communities that are more individualistic and so on are better able to deal with their challenges than some of those communities where people value other things, like I guess John Hayes would talk about sanctity and other values more. Am I getting the wrong end of the stick there? Do you think it is, generally speaking, preferable? I didn't make any normative judgments, I hope. But do you think that, say, even within the United States, society, parts of a country that are more rather than less weird, are better able to solve a bunch of social problems, are better able to sustain economic growth, are more likely to prosper, more likely to have good life outcomes? Or do you think that's not really the case? Well, I mean, it depends what you want. So if religious faith and having friends that are strong in religious faith is important to you, then that's going to favor some of the counties that have a more parochial, more local morality. If you're interested in innovation, then you're going to want to go to the cities, the places near water, and the places that have lots of immigrants. Because immigration to the U.S. has been a major driver of innovation over the last few decades. So it depends what you want. Longevity would be stronger in other places, in places with a more universalistic morality. All right. Well, those sound like pretty attractive attributes, but um, I'm not going to push you. Well, but it depends. If you care about religion and God, then, you know, then you make a different choice. I think one thing that's interesting about this book is that it both makes some of these attributes out to be quite Western in terms of their genealogy, right? It is a particular story about Western Europe, which helps to explain how some human beings come to be deeply weird. But it also seems quite universalistic in terms of humans' capacity or potentially desire to be weird. As we're seeing, it is not the case that everybody in Germany is weird or everybody in the United States is weird and nobody in Kenya is. In many ways, the divide lies between some communities in the United States that are sort of quite rural and perhaps a little bit more cut off from the world versus the big urban centers. And in Kenya, we've seen that 
actually undergraduates at the University of Nairobi look rather similar to their American counterparts and the laborers there look rather similar to societies that really aren't weird. Is the whole world gradually moving towards weirdness? Well, I think that has been true, but the one problem is we have a tendency to think about this as a unidirectional continuum. So with the expansion of Europe after 1500, and especially since the Industrial Revolution, European institutions have spread all over the world. Countries like Japan and China adopt Western civil codes. So Japan starts adopting lots of Western civil codes in the 1880s. China adopts it in the 1950s. Turkey adopts it in 1926. So this has changed the nature of these societies, rising urbanization, Western-style economic institutions, universities spread in all these places, formal schooling. Formal schooling is basically Western schooling. That has certainly altered how people think about the world, but I think in lots of places we're seeing new recombinations. So what seems to be going on in China is not something that looks exactly like the West, but it's not something that also reflects I mean, it does reflect deep Chinese history, but it, there's clearly a new recombination going on there, some new direction. And so you think that sort of the most economically and militarily successful societies for the last 100 or 200 years have been deeply weird, but we can't predict that that will necessarily always be the case. And if societies that certainly probably are more weird than Europe 4,000 years ago, but perhaps less weird than Europe or the United States today, manage to be more successful, then I suppose that might lead to another kind of recombination of what kind of attributes are valued and encouraged in a social context. What might that look like? What might a society look like that is quite successful, that can sustain economic growth and that can sustain some amount of military prowess, which in the modern context is likely to be one of the necessary conditions of its existence, while being a little bit less weird than, say, the United States are today. What might that look like, you think? Well, I mean, one thing that's clear from the United States today is that there's one thing about being an individualistic is everybody thinks they have a right to an opinion and a right to express themselves and a right to have their way and all that kind of thing. So that has real costs. And so you can imagine lots of gains in social efficiency if we could get everyone on the same page with new forms of surveillance technology. It might be easier to keep people in line and track them and you know, DNA and things like that allow us to kind of make sure we know who we got. And the internet allows us to track people through space and time. So you can imagine whole new social forms that are based on just the technologies that have been developed, say, in the last 20 years that were unimaginable. So one thing like trust. So if you get in an Uber, trust isn't a big issue, right? Because Uber has your credit card. And, you know, they check it to make sure when they ding it, it's going to give money, right? But when you used to get in a cab, the driver had to hope that you had money in your wallet and that you would give it to him when you got to the other end. And so it's just, you know, things like that are eliminating the interpersonal trust that we used to rely on. So that seems to me that's going to change how the world is. It's worth knowing, one of the things I emphasize in the book is that if you look at the world in the year 1000, the most successful societies were the Islamic world in China. Then you probably would have said India and Europe seemed like a relative backwater. So if you look at the writings of Islamic scholars, they talk about the white barbarians of the North, by which they mean like the English and the Danes or something. So there's been a lot of changes just in the last thousand years. This is not some deep seat of history. There's been a dramatic change. We should expect dramatic changes again. One of the things you learn when you study these differences is that Westerners tend to think analytically, which means we assume that current trends will continue. But I think what history teaches us is that current trends won't continue. 
this I think is absolutely right that human instinct is always when you see a line to just project it forward in relatively linear fashion, but that's rarely actually what happens. And I've talked about this in this podcast in many different contexts. But that's not the human instinct. That's a weird intuition. Oh, I said the, the weird instinct. I'm not sure how analytical it is because of course there's not necessarily, I mean, it's not, not, it's not a logical instinct, right? I mean, there is not in fact a logical reason to assume that and past performance doesn't guarantee future results or whatever the financial phrase is. You know, the example of Uber is really interesting that you needed to have a certain kind of interpersonal trust. And now we have mechanisms that take away the need for that. I think in a certain kind of sphere, it feels as though we have returned to the dynamics of a village rather than a city. I've just been talking about this in a different podcast, so my listeners may be hearing this point for the second time, but one of the great changes that you see in the biographies of artists, of people who are gay in the past, of people who don't fit the mold of that small town in which we might grow up is that they go from a community in which everybody knows everybody's business and they move to the city and they love the anonymity of it and the freedom that gives them. And I wonder whether social media is in many ways a step back towards a culture where everybody knows everything about everyone. You know, your one moment of shame is remembered forever. You know, many of the mechanisms that we associate more with a village than with a city and more with pre-weird societies than with weird societies suddenly come back. Might that change the nature of what Western societies look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the kind of technological change that could have a big impact, right? Because it used to be, you know, if you had some crazy idea and you put it out in one town, people didn't like it or they got mad at you or something like that, you could just go to a new town, right? <laughs> or go to a different country in a new town. Uh, but now, you know, it'll follow you on the web forever. Speaking of interpersonal trust, it may be that there is a kind of depleting resource here, right? That as societies become more and more individualistic, they spend down some of the forms of inherent social trust that you had because of a legacy of more collective ways of doing things. And that that allows them to be very, very successful and effective for a while. But that once interpersonal trust has been spent down so much that you actually have trouble sustaining political institutions, sustaining the rule of law and so on, you then get a real decline. Do you think that is a way of trying to understand some of the political changes of the last decade or so, some of the sort of deep fragmentation that a country like the United States now seems to be in? Yeah, the way I think of it. So, you know, institutions are built to try to preserve that trust. So the competition, say, in markets or something, firms compete in markets. I make the case in the book that actually drives up impersonal trust. But the problem is, is that, you know, there's always self-interested actors who are trying to figure out ways to manipulate the system. So in the economic sphere, companies figure out ways to monopolize or to otherwise exploit the system or use financial techniques to exploit the system. So Enron, and then this depletes the trust in that system. At the political level, you know, people figure out ways to use social media or exploit divisions among the society to their political benefit. And that's, in some sense, figuring out where the gaps and cracks are in the institution and trying to break it. So one of my ideas that I take from history is that, you know, all institutions break apart and we're always just trying to, like, patch them together and keep them going for as long as possible before they fracture. So I think that's consistent with what you're saying. Well, let me ask you a question about these different societies, which is, is it the case that at this moment in time, individualistic cultures are more successful and therefore the West has for the last 
200 or so years dominated. Uh, there's a question now of the rise of China, whether that's still the case. Or is it that at each of these junctures, when you know the Islamic world was most advanced around 1000 AD, and perhaps India was most advanced around 1500 AD, that at each of those points, those societies were in fact weirder than Europe or more individualistic than Europe. Which is to say, is it just a horse race about when countries adopt various aspects of weirdness at different junctures in time? Or is it that at different historical moments, societies that were significantly less weird fit the requirements of that historical moment better and were therefore more able to flourish? Well, yeah, that's a complicated question. I make the case in the book that the sort of unprecedented surge of innovation that you see emerging in Europe, particularly in England after 1750, is actually the product of a, a kind of collective brain point of view. So it's not that people got individually smarter, but ideas were flowing more readily around Europe for lots of reasons. I mentioned the movement of people. So as people would move from town to town, say craftsmen, they would take ideas with them, they'd meet new people, they'd exchange the ideas and make new and better ideas. So this idea that recombination is important. After 1500, of course, Europe is expanding around the world, but they're grabbing lots of ideas that they're encountering around the world, bringing them back to Europe and turning them into products or scientific knowledge or those kinds of things. So that really fuels the explosion there. Now, we have seen this before. So you mentioned the Islamic world. Uh, there's a great book called Lost Enlightenment, which discusses how actually in Central Asia it was the core of where a lot of the innovation and cultural flourishing that we think of as Islamic. It emerges from Central Asia. And there, there was a lot of trade and markets, and it's kind of where you'd expect if the collective brain is a key idea, because they were pulling insights from China, India, actually not much was coming in from Europe, but from the Middle East Mediterranean area were coming into Central Asia. And they were putting these ideas together and creating new recombinations. So having a place where there's like a hub, you need urbanization, you need lots of ideas to come together, and there's various ways to get there. I want to return to the big picture for a moment, right? So people in the West are actually quite psychologically peculiar. They're quite different from how most people in the history of humanity have been, how a lot of people around the world are today. It does create certain kinds of benefits. It makes it easier to sustain a certain kind of abstract rule of law, a certain set of economic institutions. And we're sort of trying to figure out there's nothing inherent about that, right? This is not a sort of cultural essentialism, but there's just something about people in the West that makes them attracted to these ideals. It's because of a set of institutions and a chain of events, which in principle could be exported to other places as well. So I guess I want to return a little bit more towards understanding how that's likely to play out in the future. When you look at a society like China, how weird is it at this point compared to the United States? And how likely do you think it is that some of the collective traditions, whether it's Confucianism or whether it's elements of Marxism, are actually going to make the society sort of significantly different. Certainly, if you think the driving force is the nuclear family, in part as a result of a one-child policy, China now has a more extreme version of a nuclear family than the West has ever had, probably. Yeah, so there's lots of complex forces going on there, and I can't pretend to be an expert, but certainly the one-child policy, they ended polygyny when they adopted the Western civil codes, they stopped cousin marriage in 1980, and so they've done a lot of things to break people down into nuclear families. Although at the same time, since 1980, well, starting in 1950, China had made a big surge to demolish the clans. They burned genealogies and did all this stuff. But after 1980, things changed. 
And clans began to reassert themselves in the rural areas. And in fact, there's been some movement of people who were in villages that were dominated by clans they weren't in actually getting driven out and having to return to the villages where their parents or grandparents had come from to get in a village where their clan was the majority. And that means they're safe. And I discussed evidence in the book showing that villages that are dominated by single clans do better economically. They have stronger businesses and they're better able to extract resources from the government, basically because they can persuade politicians to do what they want. So explain that mechanism to us. Is it a version of some of the research on the welfare state in the United States and Western Europe, which is that you're more willing to sustain certain forms of state institutions if you feel like, quote unquote, people like me are going to be the beneficiaries? Whereas if there's sort of growing diversity of any kind, here diversity of clans or in other contexts, ethnic or religious diversity, you feel like, oh, you know what, the benefits of these institutions might go to people who I think of as the outgroup. Why would I want to contribute to those and you end up with a less effective solution to the collective action problems we all face? Yeah, I think it's related to what you said, but also you get the impression from my readings that it's about the fact that they can solve the collective action more effectively. So it still seems to be the case, even when you're dealing with MBAs, Chinese people who were trained in American, say, Columbia MBA courses, they still find their business relationships through social networks in a way that is inconsistent from, you know, people trained in the same MBA program who are Americans who end up going to work in America. So just the way people use social relationships to maintain trust and to build business relationships seems to be different. So at the village level, I think it's just that, you know, you want to hire relatives and the more relatives you have, the more people you can hire. And the more relatives you have, the more you can try to influence the politicians through social connections. But why does that lead to better outcomes, I guess, is the piece that I'm puzzled by. Because it solves the cooperative dilemma. I see. So, so let's go back to that. What do you think of the implication of all of that? It's, it's a really rich book that you know I found to be incredibly thought-provoking and challenging in my perception of the world. It was less clear to me whether it had any kind of a direct upshot. And of course, that's not necessarily criticism. It's not necessarily what you're trying to do. But if we're reflecting on some of the challenges that our societies are facing today. And if we're reflecting on how it is, for example, that a country like the United States can manage its incredible diversity and the demographic change it's undergoing, you know, are there any lessons that you would take from the insights in the history that you've outlined? Well, I mean, some of the big points I try to emphasize would be that institutions, meaning things like the family, but also religious institutions, and then, of course, things like representative government, actually shape how people in that society think, feel, and reason. So there's this interlocking thing between psychology. In one chapter, I talk about how the marriage system can influence male testosterone. So societies that are polygynous, males don't experience the decline in testosterone that you find in Western countries and other countries that have stable monogamy. Men's testosterone declines when they get married and then again when they have children. So it actually has real effects on physiology. So that's an important point. Another theme in the book is how this recombination drives innovation. So really you want institutions that bring together diverse minds and that creates the kind of fertile innovation that is responsible for the industrial revolution and solving lots of modern problems. Uh, so those are two themes in the book that seem relevant to solving real problems. 
I mean, I guess the problem with individualism is that it allows innovation, invention, it allows people to speak up if something is either morally wrong or just stupid, some way society does something, it's just not very efficient. And so hopefully we get towards better solutions. On the other hand, of course, it always creates a problem or the danger of fractionalization, of fragmentation, of egotism, of uh, lack of altruism. Do you think the United States is too far on one side of this at the moment? And do you think that we need a return of some form of collective spirit or enterprise in order to overcome the fragmentation of the last years? Or do you think that's the wrong way of thinking about it? Well, yeah, the question is how to do it, right? So it'd be great if there could be something that created the stronger bonds that we used to see amongst Americans and kind of shared sense of mission, shared sense of social identity, rather than the polarization we have. One of the things that hasn't been optimistic in the kind of research that I've been doing is that some of that sense of Americanism that we've long had is due to the wars. So you see a large spike in that sense of American can-do ingenuity after the major wars. And there's lots of research to show that wars have this effect on people psychologically. So we started with a very individual question, and I want to go back to the individual question. If your research is right, then a majority of the kind of people who listen to this podcast will have answered the I am question by talking about individual characteristics. Is there any evidence of how personal life outcomes are influenced by that? Is that a good model for a happy and fulfilled life? Or should I and everybody else reflect on how to perhaps emphasize some of those relational qualities and self-definitions more than the ones we're probably prone to give. Yeah, so it's one of these answers that's a tricky one. Well, I guess it does tell you what you should do. But if you look at the happiness research, so life satisfaction, happiness, definitely the case that more materially comfortable societies have greater happiness. So people like to be well-fed, they like to be secure, you know, they like to have health care, all this kind of obvious stuff. That does seem to go up, although it's logarithmic with income. So $1,000 at the low income has a much bigger effect than $1,000 if you're rich, but it still has an effect. But the interesting thing is, is that having more family ties also makes you happier. So stronger family ties. And so my story is like family ties are bad for at least modern economic growth of the kind we've seen occurring in Europe over the last few centuries. But family ties are good for happiness. So what you want to do is live in a rich society, but have lots of family ties. So that's very interesting. And I think it goes back to the way in which developments may be really helpful for a while and then at some point become counterproductive or they may be collectively beneficial but individually pernicious. Well, listen, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it was great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.